Well, Elizabeth and I were excited. We'd only been married a few months, but we had mapped out, well, maybe it's longer than that, I don't remember now, but we had mapped out this weekend that we were going to steal away, which when you have two churches is a difficult thing in and of itself, but we mapped out months in advance, we were going to take this weekend off, and we were going to go camping, just the two of us. And so, sure enough, that's what we planned to do, and we gathered all the things we needed to do, and I remember checking the weather as we were looking at where we were going, and it looked very much like this weekend, rainy and cold. And so I said, well, Elizabeth, you still want to go? She said, sure, let's just go anyway. We've been looking forward to this. This is our weekend off. Let's go camping. And so we grabbed our Gore-Tex coats and all that rain gear and everything else. We put the canoe on the top of the truck. I mean, we were out for some expeditions that were going to be incredible. And so we took off, and we were making our way, and it was about, I don't know, two-hour commitment into the trip, I'd say. Almost there. And the thought dawns on me, we have the canoe on top of the truck, the paddles. Where were you? We had no paddles. And as Elizabeth is so good at doing, calm down, it will be just fine. Sometimes that makes me more frustrated. You don't realize. No, no, calm down, calm down. Be okay. All right. So we get there, we find a campsite after driving around, driving around. I think we got lost on the way there too, so we should have been there at least an hour and a half ago. Finally get there, pull in, of course the whole place we have to ourselves, (laughs) And and we go to start setting up the tent in the rain, which is another fun thing to do, and trying to find the holes, and it's already hard enough to get the tent poles through, but when the material is wet, and then this was in the wrong place, and it was going in the wrong way, and back and forth, and it was just a mess. Finally, we get the tent up, get the tarp on, get the sleeping bags put in there. And the last thing we wanted to do to try and be comfortable on this rainy camping weekend, because after all, we're professionals, a tarp over top of this picnic table. And so, any of you that might own one of these tarps, it's really long. It has four posts on either side and something you put on the table that sticks up. And you have two strings that go down from each side. Can you picture it? So there's two here and there's two there and there's two there. And so you lay the whole thing out. You build the poles. And I'm going to prop this thing up over here on this side and put in a stake and a stake. Elizabeth, hold this one. I'm going to go over here and try and fool with this one. And in the meantime, I'm going over here. And then something falls and drops and that stake pulls out. And so I'm back over here trying to hold this one up. But this, and then that drops over there. And we're going round and round in circles. By this point, we're feeling a little frustrated. Have you ever been there when it's just not working out, it's not going well, and you're trying to grin and bear it, but this is awful. What were we thinking? Now granted, that was probably the low point. The rest of the weekend recovered. We had a fair time without our canoe paddles. But have you ever found yourself in a similar situation? Usually the argument heightens as the plan fails, right? I thought you were going to grab the paddles. No, I thought you had them. Well, you didn't say anything. Well, I just assumed. And the finger pointing begins as people get edgy and testy. Have you ever seen this played out in the church? 
a ministry seems to be failing, and the arguing ensues. Well, it was his fault. He was in charge of that part. Well, it was her fault because she didn't follow through on her end. It was their fault because they weren't behind it. And then the I told you so start in. I told you it wouldn't work. Not in this community, not in this town. And rather than figuring out why something went wrong, we often seem more concerned with the fact that everybody knows just whose fault it was. Yet in so doing, we're not contributing to the solution. Rather, we're only magnifying the problem. Is it true? But the humanness in us, in me, thinks that if I can make them look bad, I'll look better. Whether with teammates or spouses or coworkers or church members, when things start to fall apart, when the pressure is dialed up a few notches, when plan B and C have failed as well, and you're still losing altitude... It's at those times that you'll see what other people are made of. Scarier still, you'll see what you're made of. And so in Mark's gospel account, we find a time when the plan fails. It's utter disaster. And the arguing begins. Open with me, if you will, in your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, is where we're going to begin this morning. And we find, leading up to this, in fact, right there in verse 1, we're not going to start there, but that's Jesus being transfigured, the transfiguration, where Jesus takes three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, and they have this incredible mountaintop experience. They get a peek, if you will, into the glory of God. Of God, And they're left awestruck and amazed. Even Peter doesn't know what to say. And gladly they would have stayed in that holy place which had been touched by the light of heaven, but there was work to be done among the people. And so after having this rich, high, mountaintop spiritual experience, we find them coming back down into the valley. And immediately they are confronted with the realities of life. Accusations against Jesus and their fellow disciples, warfare against demonic forces. And isn't that just the way that the devil likes to work? Just after you've had that high mountaintop experience with Jesus on that spiritual high, watch out, friends, because the devil is running around like a roaring lion. He wants to steal that experience away from you as fast as he can. To rob us of our assurance, rob us of our faith, our peace. And so that's what we have. On the coattails of this very high spiritual experience, we have discouragement and humiliation. We read about it in chapter 9 of Mark, beginning verse 14. My Bible reads, and when he came to the disciples, he being Jesus, he saw a great multitude around him and scribes disputing with them. Immediately when they saw him, all the people were greatly amazed and running to him, greeted him. And he asked the scribes, what are you discussing 
with them. Then one of the crowd answered and said, Teacher, I brought you my son who has a mute spirit. Now, in Matthew's account, this father comes and kneels before Jesus and calls the condition epilepsy or seizure-type activity. And, of course, in ancient times, physical illness was believed to be and often was accompanied with some spiritual or demonic possession. And that's exactly what we see here. Continuing on, verse 18, and whenever, the father says, whenever it seizes him, he throws him down and he foams at the mouth and gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out, but they could not. Now, earlier in Mark's gospel account, chapter 3, We have Jesus giving them authority, both to preach, to heal sickness, and further to cast out demons. This was not new. They'd done this countless times before. So the question, why not this time? This time the disciples are found wanting, and they're feeling incredibly exposed and ill-equipped. Well, Andrew, what did you say? I said the same thing I said last time. You try it, and nothing is working. And now, in front of their arch-nemesis, the scribes, they are being publicly shamed. Do you get the picture? The scribes, of course, are taking every advantage now, pressing around these nine disciples, overwhelming them with question after question, seeking to discredit and humiliate them. We've got them now. They're on the run. Triumphantly, I can hear them declaring, here is an evil spirit that neither disciples nor Christ himself can conquer. That both they and their masters were deceivers. And here was the proof. And like any good crowd often does, they start to side with the scribes and say, you know, that makes sense. And as contempt and scorn fill the crowd, can you sense now the tension of the nine? Can you feel their insecurity, their frustration, their confusion? Compounded by the thought that they're misrepresenting and failing their Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. And while they know what the scribes are saying is untrue, the disciples feel paralyzed and perplexed by their own failure. So I spoke to your disciples, the father said, and they could, that they should cast it out, but they could not. Continuing on, verse 19, he, Jesus, answered him and said, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. 
Then they brought him to him, and when he saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed and foamed at the mouth. So he asked his father, how long? Honestly, how long has this happened to him? And he said, from childhood. And often he's thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. You see, the scribes and the crowd and the experience has caused the father to lose faith. Here we see a father not doubting God's intentions, but doubting his very power. If you can do anything, please. We've tried it all. We've been to everyone we know to go to. This is a last resort. If you can do anything, please, we beg of you. Him. Yes, yes, okay. Jesus said to him, if you can believe all things... All things are possible to him who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears in this aha moment, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Here we see a gut-wrenching honesty from the father, afraid of his lack of faith will cost him his son. And he longs to believe, yet he doesn't put on airs, but makes a refreshingly honest statement. I believe. Help my unbelief. We'll look at that statement a little later that Ellen White makes, but she says we can never be lost when we pray that prayer. Isn't that reassuring? Verse 25, when Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and enter him no more. Then the spirit cried out, convulsed him greatly, and came out of him, and he became as one dead. So that many said, he is dead. But verse 27, Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. The devil had seized this boy, shrieked, convulsed, came out, left dead. That's what the devil wants for you and I. He wants to leave us dead. He wants to humiliate, to discredit, to discourage, and ultimately to destroy you and I. So the onlookers look and they say, he's dead. She's dead. It's a hopeless situation. But notice the contrast of what Jesus wants for us. While the devil lo- longs to leave us for dead, Jesus longs to lift us up. Amen? What does the text say? Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up. Jesus raised the boy up into the newness of life and restored him. And then concluding our story, the last two verses, and when he came, verse 28, into the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? Now the crowd has gone home. Now that things have settled a bit, Lord, please tell us what went on back there. 
So he said to them, verse 29, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. In this story, we see several different categories of faith, if you want to call them categories, kinds, types of faith, if you will. But I believe the first one we come across right out of the gate is this misdirected faith of the disciples, which really, at the end of the day, is not faith at all. In fact, it's a kind of counterfeit faith. And you see, to me, the biggest danger here is the fact that the disciples thought their faith was real. But that's why it's misdirected faith. Because it's faith in the wrong thing. The focus was in the wrong place. And so Jesus responds, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. So what did Jesus mean? I mean, if prayer and fasting is the key, then why didn't Jesus pray first? We didn't see Jesus fast for a few days first. He could have said, you know, this is a really tough one. Let me go pray and fast, and I'll meet you right back here on Wednesday. But he doesn't do that. So was Jesus referring to some magical invocation or was he referring to something else? You know, if we look at Jesus' prayer habits, we find that Jesus regularly engaged in intense prayer. In fact, Mark records in the first chapter, verse 35, we feel, see a very revealing picture of Jesus. It says, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he did what? He prayed. And keep in mind, just the day before, just the night before, Jesus had a very full day. He had taught in the synagogue, he'd cast out demons, he healed Peter's mother-in-law, and after sunset, the text says, the whole town crowded around him with the sick and the demon-possessed. There was a revival in Capernaum. Who knows what time it was by the time Jesus' head actually hit the pillow that night. But I imagine it must have been late. Yet even with a short night's sleep, he is up early, early enough to see the stars. And he finds a lonely quiet place. You see, for Jesus, prayer and time spent with his Father was more important than sleep. The Gospel of Luke tells us of times when Jesus spent the entire night in prayer before choosing his disciples. For Jesus, prayer was more important than sleep. Are you listening, church? We serve a kind and gracious and merciful God. I've had a rough day. Been out ministering all day. I mean, it's late. I'll just sleep in and I'll work it in some other part of the day. Good luck with that. It's hard to make that work. 
And so the picture of Jesus here in Mark 1 is Jesus praying in a quiet place. Yet the picture portrayed of the disciples is quite different. It says they go in search of Jesus, but when they find him, they do not respectfully wait until he's done. They don't join Jesus in prayerful support, but rather they say, Jesus, where have you been? As if he's being irresponsible. Where have you been, Jesus? Everyone's looking for you. What a rude interruption. But I think it speaks to the fact that they're preoccupied with their own agenda. What about the people, Jesus? The people are waiting. They're wanting. Let's go. There's ministry to be done. Everyone's searching for us. We don't want to disappoint them. Let's go. And we get the sense that they don't understand this connection through prayer. Even at the Garden of Semony, where do we find the disciples? What are they doing? They're asleep. So returning to Mark chapter 9, this kind can only come out by prayer and fasting. Was Jesus referring to a specially worded prayer they needed to memorize? Or was Jesus speaking of a dependence, a reliance on God for strength? Foolishly, we like the disciples think we can live the Christian life and do the Lord's work in our own strength. We have time to eat and to drink and to sleep, time to work and shop and chat on the phone. We have time to watch TV or read the newspaper, time for email, text, or just stare a long time at these little gadgets we have. But we have convinced ourselves that we are too busy to pray. Truth of the matter is we're too busy not to pray. All too often I'm afraid we spend countless hours spinning our wheels on things that are unimportant or would have come faster had we spent the appropriate time in prayer. So we spend our time planning and discussing and making budgets, all of those good and necessary but we do it in our limited strength, out of our imperfect wisdom, rather than praying that God show us and guide us. We ask that he bless what we've already decided. So here in Mark 9, we see what happens to those who neglect prayer and try to operate on their own steam, who try to overcome their own demons through their own strength. And Jesus' positive example of life governed by faith and prayer can repeal the threat of the evil spirits, just like that, because he's connected to his Father. Can I read you a quote from Desire of Ages, 431? In reference to this story, she says this, the carelessness which, with which they, in reference to the nine, regarded the sacred work committed to them had caused their failure in the conflict with the powers of dark darkness. Their carelessness. The selection of the three disciples to accompany Jesus to the mountain had excited the jealousy of the nine. Why didn't we go? Why weren't we chosen? Why are we still here? 
Instead of strengthening their faith by prayer and meditation, the words of Christ, notice their attention shifts, they had been dwelling on their discouragements. Do we ever get good at rehearsing those? They had been dwelling on their discouragements and personal grievances. Oh, I'm so offended. And in this state of darkness, they had undertaken the conflict with Satan, end quote. Have you ever become careless in your relationship with God? Have you seen the devastating results of looking to self? The disciples had cast out demons so many times, they became careless. They began to think that the power to accomplish lied in their own skill, their, the right technique, perhaps, simply plugging it into the equation. But here in chapter 9, we see as they trust their experience and their skill set and their expertise that it fails miserably. There was a time they were preoccupied with Christ, but this is not that time. This time they're preoccupied with self. And are we, sitting here this morning, are we too blind to realize that all too often we're not much different? Just like the disciples, we too are often undisciplined in our prayer life, preoccupied with ourselves, more concerned with our image, ready to engage in arguments, overwhelmed by failure, more eager to learn techniques, that new book, the latest procedure, some new idea to reach people, than to take time to walk closely with God. When if we would simply immerse ourselves in Scripture, in spirit of prophecy, immerse ourselves in prayer, and stop trying to have a foot in both camps. Do you know what I mean when I say that? Be religious on Sabbath, but get a little taste of the world on Saturday night. Grow to prayer meeting on Wednesday night, but watch garbage on TV Thursday night. Listen to God's music on Sabbath, but I still want to know what that number one pop song is so I don't seem out of touch with my colleagues. We want to have a foot in both camps. What if we just destroy that idea and say, I'm going to put both feet in God's side, in God's camp, and I'm going to say, who cares about what's happening in the news? Who cares about the latest pop song? Who cares about the latest movie? And if I've even heard of it or not, I want both feet firmly on God's side. I'm tired of the inner struggle and turmoil that comes with trying to have a foot in both camps. It's not worth it. We like to focus on the minimum requirement. Is this a salvation issue? Wrong question. Does this please and honor God? Right question. To start thinking in terms of how can I immerse myself more in God's word today than I did yesterday? What could I do? Could I get an MP3 player and just fill it with sermons? Fill it with scripture? Fill it with spirit of prophecy? Listen to it on my commute? Could I turn off the TV in the evenings? 
and decide, I'm going to read through the great controversy again this year, 2012. How can I immerse myself more in prayer? Could I pull out that prayer journal that I've neglected for so long? Could I pray throughout the day before I enter every patient's room? A little thought prayer? I'm not talking about kneeling beside the door of every patient before, but saying, Lord, please help me that I may be a blessing to this person that I talked to just now. If there's an opportunity that I can pray with this person, to share something uplifting with this person. We can pray those prayers before we walk into every classroom, every, every boardroom, every everything throughout the day. How can I immerse myself more in acts of service? Schedule time to volunteer in the community service center just up the hill. Find another community outreach that really just gets you going and put it on your calendar. Ask for a list of inactive church members and go start visiting. Haven't seen you in a while. I just want to hear about how you're doing and just listen. I don't know what to say. Perfect! Look for places in the church you could contribute. Well, this isn't done well. How could you better it? Make time to connect with your own kids and your family. But I think what we need to realize is it's not about some magic formula, but about a life bathed in God's spirit. It's not a technique, but it's a relationship. And because we are so thick with the Almighty, we cannot but overflow in everything else that we do, the grace and love of Jesus Christ. The Lord's way is so simple, but it's the only one that brings success in our Christian living and ministry. His kind can only come out, what did Jesus say? By prayer and fasting. So simple and yet so difficult. Because to truly pray is to confess my helplessness. To cast oneself on the Lord's strength. And it's so much easier for me to actually do something. And when I pray, I feel like I'm going to do nothing. No, you're doing everything. You're giving it to God. To invite and permit him to take over your heart and to work. And that's hard for our proud little selves to do. But we must follow the example of Jesus and find that quiet place in today's frantic and crazy world with all of life's time-saving devices. Who has more time? It becomes increasingly difficult to find that quietness. And it seems like more and more people cannot bear silence anymore. Have you noticed that? They have to fill every moment with space and sound and screen, 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 screen. I'm brushing my teeth, but I'm watching the news. And why are we afraid of silence? Could it be that we don't want to give opportunity to the one who says, be still and know that I am God? Maybe the Lord wants to talk to you while you're brushing your teeth. I came across a quote this week that was powerful, especially to me, as it relates to ministers, so you can relax. 
but maybe it applies to you too. I don't know. We'll see. It's a relatively lengthy quote here. Still had to bear with me. It comes from volume six of the testimonies. Starts around page 47. But listen to this. When ministers allow themselves to be called away from their work to visit the churches. When ministers allow themselves to be called away from their work to visit the churches, not only do they exhaust their physical strength, but they rob themselves of the time needed for study and prayer and for silence before God in self-examination. Thus, they are unfitted to do the work when... The, when and where it should be done. There is nothing, she goes on, more needed in the work than the practical results of communion with God. Do you believe it? There is nothing more needed in the work than practical results of communion with God. We should show by our daily lives that we have peace and rest in God. His peace in the heart will shine forth in the countenance. It will give to the voice a persuasive power. Communion with God will impart a moral elevation to the character and to the entire course of action. Men will take knowledge of us as of the first disciples that we have been with Jesus. This will impart to the minister's labor a power even greater than that which comes from the influence of his preaching. Of this power, he must not allow himself to be deprived. Communion with God through prayer and the study of his word must not be neglected. For here is the source of his strength. No work for the church should take precedence of this. We are to rely wholly upon God, pleading his promise, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. This indictment in Mark 9 reveals how feeble we are on our own. Why couldn't we drive it out? We want to be able to. We see them relying on their own professional skills, their own techniques. What did we do wrong? And sometimes I'm afraid our self-confident optimism may feel like faith, but it's in fact unbelief. Because it disregards the prerequisite of human powerlessness and prayerful dependence on God. We must remember that the power belongs to God and must be received anew each time, each day from him through a life of prayer. Don't be fooled. The success of the church, this church, is not dependent on individuals or numbers or programs, forms or techniques. The success of this church is dependent upon God and our willingness to be faithful to whatever he calls us to. Seemingly, the disciples thought they were facing impossible circumstances, but Jesus teaches them that with God, nothing is impossible. So what impossible circumstances are you facing? Are you trying to overcome them on your own? Honestly speaking, are you connected with God and his power and his strength? When is the last time you spent serious time in prayer? Do you believe that God can do anything? Do you believe that God's will in your life is the best thing for your life? 
How's your faith? Is it ever a misdirected faith like that of the disciples? Maybe yours is a struggling faith. More like the father who in desperation had tried everything and as a last resort, he goes to Jesus and brings it before his disciples and they can't do anything. And finally he says, Lord, if you can do anything at all, please. Any parents here prayed that prayer? As you watch your children follow a destructive path and the devil tries hard to throw them in the fire of drugs and alcohol and down with despair. But what is Jesus' response to that desperate parent? Everything is possible for him who believes. I do believe. Help my unbelief. He's pleading for help just as he is as a doubter. Does not ask for a sign to jumpstart his faith, but turns his empty hands towards God and asks him to fill them. Desire of Ages again says this, it is faith that connects us with heaven and brings us strength from coping with the powers of darkness. In Christ, God has provided means for subduing every sinful trait and resisting every temptation, however strong. But many feel that they lack faith and therefore they remain away from Christ. Does anybody feel that way? They don't have enough faith. I, I just, I'm going to stay back here. Let these souls in their helpless unworthiness cast themselves upon the mercy of their compassionate Savior. Look not to self, but to Christ. He who healed the sick and cast out demons when he walked among men is the same mighty Redeemer today. Faith comes by the word of God. Then grasp his promise. Him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. Cast yourself at his feet and cry, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And here it is, you can never perish while you do this, never. In case you missed it, she says, never twice. So how's your faith? Maybe it's a misdirected faith like that of the disciples. Maybe your faith is struggling like that of the father in this story. But maybe, and my prayer for all of us, is that we will come to the point of that resting faith that Jesus had. A faith formed by spending time early in the morning in that quiet place, in prayer and communion with God. A faith that recognizes my only power and strength comes from God. A faith that rests in the hands of the Father. So where are you today in that mix of those three? I don't know about you, but I oftentimes take turns. At times I think my faith is misdirected. Sometimes I fall into the trap of thinking that the success of my ministry or my family or my church is dependent upon me, and it's not. God is in control. My job is to stay connected and to be faithful to him and let him write the script. And until I realize that, I'm powerless. I'm running on my own steam like the disciples. I'll find myself arguing and bickering because nothing seems to work. 
And maybe there's some here that find themselves in that spot this morning. Maybe you have a struggling faith. And you find yourself in a situation that makes absolutely no sense. And it leaves you with more questions than it does answers. And faith becomes a real struggle to you because you have to believe in God against all odds. Yet by the grace of God, you find yourself saying, I believe. Help my unbelief. If so, praise the Lord. Because while you feel in the dark, Jesus is saying, yes, I can use that. But then there's that last category, the resting faith of Jesus. Have you experienced the peace of God in a turbulent world? Because you stopped trying to figure out all the details, and instead you focused on your relationship with Christ. Have you ever felt the joy of completely resting in the Savior and trusting Him with school, with your job, with your future, with your marriage, your family, your finances, your retirement, your ministry? I believe Jesus longs to fill us with the joy and peace and hope that come from fully trusting in Him. So this morning, my appeal to all of us would be be watchful of only having the appearance of faith, this type of misdirected, me-centered faith. And even in our weakest of moments to say, I believe, help my unbelief. And each day to strive to have a faith that rests in the hands of God. And when you do that, you know what will happen? One last quote. When those to whom God has entrusted responsibilities as leaders fear and tremble before him because of the responsibilities of the work, when they feel their own unworthiness and seek the Lord in humility, when they purify themselves from all that is displeasing to him, when they plead with him until they know that they have forgiveness and peace, then... God will manifest himself through them. Then the work will go forward with power. Perhaps our prayer this morning could be simply this. Lord, forgive me for my self-centeredness. I believe. Help my unbelief. And give me a settled and resting faith in you today. Amen. Let us pray. Dear Lord, this morning, we want to surrender all to you, recognizing that in our own self-centeredness, we have often run ahead of you. We have tried to overcome, to conquer, to minister in our own strength, in our own power, and again and again we have come up short. Forgive us, Father. We believe. Help us overcome our unbelief. Help us to take our walk with you seriously. Not to fulfill some minimum requirement, but to surrender all to you, to firmly place both feet 
on the side of Christ, that we may be changed, transformed, revived into your likeness. May 2012 be a year of revival in our own personal walk with you. And may that revival spill over into every other aspect of our lives is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.